Hello, peace lovers and peacemakers. This is Sarah Jamshidi. You are listening to Peace Mindedly, a podcast show where I feature peaceful bridge makers. In other words, I talk to people who are connecting souls, ideas, cultures, nations, and everything in between. Before I dive into the program, I have one request, and I think it's a very special and important request, and that is please do email me your feedback. I would love to improve, and I would love to improve in a way that become a better version of myself for my work and to do this work better and better. Your feedback is very important to me. Editor at Golton.com, write me your comments, your questions, your suggestions, and everything you think I need to know to improve my work here. So for this hour, uh, we are talking about Jalaluddin Muhammad ibn Molavi, known as Molana in Iran and Rumi in the West. Rumi lived and died in the 13th century. He left behind books that became manuscript of love, compassion, and mysticism in Islamic traditions. There are two men, the best, the best of the best, here with me in my online studio who are going to unfold Rumi for us. Coleman Barks is a renowned poet who brought international fame to Rumi's poems by translating nearly 20 books about Rumi. Some of those books include The Essential Rumi, Rumi, The Book of Love, Poems of Ecstasy and Longing, Rumi, The Big Red Book, The Great Masterpiece Celebrating Mystical Love and Friendship, Rumi, Bridge to the Soul, Journey into the Music and Silence of the Heart. Coleman is going to tell us what was his secret of translating Rumi so masterfully and how he created lots of criticism of translating Rumi. Omid Safi looks at Rumi from a unique perspective. Omid can read Masnavi, Rumi's masterpiece, and any of his books in Farsi. He is an American professor of Asian and Middle Eastern studies at Duke University. He served as a director of Duke Islamic Studies Center. Omid is the leader of the progressive Muslim movement, and he's written a book under the same title, Progressive Muslim. The book includes diverse collection of essays on the same subject. His other books include The Politics of Knowledge in Pre-Modern Islam, Memories of Muhammad, Why the Prophet Matters, Voices of American Muslim. Omid has been publicly vocal, inviting both Muslims and Americans to the, quote, the highest good of which we are capable. Here I'm welcoming Omid and Coleman. Here I have Coleman. Hello, Coleman. Hello, hello. Welcome to the program. Hello, Omid. Hello. Hello, hello, hello. It's, it's, it's such an honor. Thank you so much for being here. I really would love to know what inspired you, each one of you, that you decided to tackle Rumi. That story has three strands to it. First, in 1976, I was at a conference with my friend Robert Bly, the poet, and uh, he likes to give writing exercises in the afternoons. So he handed me a 
a book of Rumi translations by A.J. Arbery. He says, these poems need to be released from their cages, by which he meant that uh, they need to be freed from the language of the scholars and uh, scholarly translations. So I began doing that every day, pretty much, trying to rephrase the English of Arbery, who's a Cambridge Islamicist, along with his friend Reynold Nicholson. And so I, I would work on... Uh, I would go downtown to Athens to the Bluebird Cafe and get some tea and um, sit there and try to rephrase uh, Arbery's translations into a poem in American free verse, what we were known around the world for. I like the way the translations turned out. What is the mechanics of translating poems you think that you know and not scholars know about those mechanics you think i'm told that um, sometimes my that rumi has a lot of playfulness in his poetry and that somehow that comes through in my work uh, i've been told that by people who know the persian i'm not sure why People who know the Persian like Omid. So, Omid, tell me what inspired you to tackle Rumi and what you think you know that creates a space for you to talk about Rumi and to translate Rumi. I would never say that I tackle Rumi. I would say it's more like uh, surrender. Reading his poetry sometimes feels like when you're sitting by the ocean And there's just wave after wave after wave that's just coming at you and washing over you. And at some point, you just want the current to pull you into the ocean until there's no more you and no more ocean. There's just one. You know, there are there are many uh, wonderful, wonderful Sufi poets in, in this tradition. I was blessed enough to be introduced to them by my father. Um, like many Persian speakers, he loves Rumi. He likes, uh, loves Hafez and loves Sadi and some of the other ones. But there was something about reading Rumi that touched my heart when I was 15 years old. And I could never figure out if he was talking about his teacher or the prophet or a girl, or God, or all of them at the same time. And here I am some 35 years later, and I'm still trying to sort that out. Do you remember the line? um, You know, he's got 60,000 lines of poetry, so it's not just one or two of them. That's why I say he's like an ocean that just keeps coming at you in in waves. But, you know, there was one, Zahi Ishq, Zahi Ishq, Kemaras, Khodara. Like, look at this wondrous love that we have by God. And and he'll just go from talking about his teacher Shams to talking about the prophets, talking about God. And, you know, the wonderful thing about the Persian language, as Coleman said, it's a very playful language and it doesn't have gender the way that Arabic and French and some other languages do. So when you're reading a love poem, it's very ambiguous. If it's talking about a person, if it's talking about God, if it's talking about a male beloved, a female beloved. And I think the deliciousness of his poetry is that it's all of them at the same time. But here's the issue. What do we lose in translation? Well, um, you know, first of all, let's just remember that anytime that we meet another human being, that there's a translation that's involved. Even when the two people are standing in the room, looking at each other, speaking the same language, any of us who've ever had a relationship, you know when you stare at the person in 
might be your partner, you might be your child, and it's as if they are a mystery to you. So just because we're speaking the same language, it doesn't mean that we have the same heart. I think in, in Rumi's case, he is deeply immersed in a world which by his time had taken 500 years to develop from the time of the Prophet and the time of the Quran and the rich Sufi tradition. And I think part of my own hope is that people uh, will read and love and appreciate the American free verse stuff that I think, and Coleman won't say this about himself, so hopefully I can. I'm really, really fascinated to know. You read Rumi, I read Rumi, we read in Farsi, and this man has done something yeah. that that really captured captured minds, hearts for centuries. What does this man have that is really unique? I think one of them is that he's got this extraordinary ability to tell stories. He takes everyday stories that of things that are around you, a donkey pissing in the street and cooking chickpeas on a stove and a man and a woman arguing, and he shows how the luminous is already present inside what you used to think was the everyday. And I don't think anybody's done that better than Rumi has. I think he's got a gift for seeing the light in what you used to think was just the dirt. Yes, yes, I I do agree. And then, Coleman, I'm just going to follow up with the question I had. At least for me, that is learning Persian. Uh, English and I'm still learning English. English is so mechanical, you know. It's even when we speak, the thoughts uh, is just from the point A to point B to point C. But Omid and I know that Persian is not like that. So because of whatever reason, it's uh, it's not mechanical. It's just so much going on within a one paragraph, one sentence, and so forth. And then someone to someone to understand this mechanics and and translate it. I think is so fascinating. I'm glad you said that. I'm, uh, it feels like there's a fluidity and uh, as Omid said, a kind of an oceanic sense, a wash happening in the language. There's no way to imitate uh, in, in English. Uh, all, all I can do is put him in the tradition of Walt Whitman. He seems to fit there pretty well. Omid, what do you think, what what has been uh, Coleman's, uh, you, you, know, you, you two know each other really well for a long time. So what do you think that, what has been his success perhaps? Well, I think um, he translates with heart and from the heart. And I think people can tell when something is coming from the heart. You know, in Persian, we got this wonderful expression, anchas del barayat bedelrasat. Whatever comes from one's heart reaches another person's heart. Some of the scholars that used to translate Rumi, people like Nicholson, his students said, that when Nicholson was translating Rumi, and this is a quote, no concession had been made to readability. Nicholson was actually translating Rumi for the students, the English students of the Persian language. So he was doing a literal word by word translation so that those English students can look at Nicholson's literal translation and compare it to the Persian original. Well, that's a really different task 
than somebody who comes to Rumi and you've told them this might have been, and I think he was, I'm pretty sure Coleman thinks he was, that this might have been the greatest mystical poet that this world has ever known. And you give them Nicholson's literal translation and it's like a stone bird. It don't fly. <laughs> it just sinks. And you got to take that next step. Once you've done the literal word-for-word -word translation, then you got to come up with something that in English would be worthy of being called poetry. And I think that's the part that a lot of the scholarly translations have been missing. So that's why when I do my own translations, what I do is first I sit down with the original and I go through very faithfully and I come up with something that... If I look at the English translation and I look at the original, I can meet my Lord and meet Rumi and say, I've tried to do my best. And then what I do is I literally close the Persian book because it's got too much hold over me. It's got too much influence over me. And I sit there with that literal translation and I try to figure out how can I make this? How can I break up the lines? How can I play with the words so that it can become poetry in its own right? And only after I've done that, do I reopen the book to make sure I haven't taken too many liberties with it. Um, so I think there is that kind of process of dance that's involved with it. And that's why I think we all need each other and we need the inspiration that we get from each other. So you know Coleman really well. What question you think that you would ask Coleman that no one has ever asked and what would be his answer? Well, um, you know, the nicest thing about uh, Love and Rumi is that he repeats a lot of the same rhymes and even some of the same stories. So just because other people have asked Coleman this question, I don't mind asking it again because it's so sweet, uh, especially in his uh, sweet, is it Chattanooga kind of a flexion of voice that I could listen to that forever. Um, I think Coleman was starting to talk about how he's got these multiple lineages uh, he's got the connection with Robert Bly. He's got the connection with Walt Whitman. And then there's the part that I would love to hear him talk about, which is the connection with the Sufi teacher, Baba Muhayyiddin. Maybe the the way that Baba's presence lingers in, in his life and in his poetry. Mm -hmm. Well, I hope so, yeah. June of May the, May the 2nd, uh, 1977, I had a dream in which I, I grew up right next to the Tennessee River. That's my deepest uh, mystical connection, I think, is with the Tennessee River. Uh, I'm a river mystic of, of anything, you know, <laughs> rather than a Presbyterian or a Sufi. <laughs> and I was sleeping on a bluff above the river in the dream I was sleeping. And uh, I, I woke up inside the dream, and a ball of light uh, rose off of uh, Williams Island, right across the river, and uh, came and settled over me where I was uh, sleeping. It clarified from the inside out, and uh, and uh, there was a man sitting inside the ball of light, and uh, he was had a white thing over his head, shawl sort of, and he, he raised his head and he looked at me, <laughs> and he said, "I love you," and I said, uh, "I love you too," and with that uh, connection. The uh, I became aware of the moisture in the in the whole atmosphere. The, it was the time when the dew was forming 
and the dew formed in that river. I felt somehow you can do in, in a, a dream. I felt the process of the dew forming, and the dew was love. So the moisture of the world found throughout everything, and the moisture was love. A year and a half later, through a series of coincidences, I, I met that man. I walked into the room uh, in Philadelphia where he was on Overbrook Avenue. <laughs> and uh, he, uh, I read him some of the uh, roomy that I've been right, right, been working on. He said, this is uh, this is important. This has got to be done. So uh, my feeling is that uh, he, he, is, he is my only credential. Uh, my connection with uh, Baba Muhayyadeen is the only reason uh, that I, I have or any right to uh, work on the poetry of Jala Rumi. So we have one American, one Iranian. How can Rumi's work bring both nations closer to each other? Omid. Well, uh, that's a wonderful question. And I think it takes us to the real heart of, of the conversation. Um, you know, Rumi's got this wonderful line that he says, ما برای وست کردن آمدیم. We have been sent to bring humanity together, to bring union. We have not been sent here to tear people apart. And, you know, I think it's one of the points that, um, that in reading Rumi, you remember time and again, um, anybody can take a fine dish, pottery, and smash it on the ground to a thousand pieces. But it takes an artist to create one, to put it back together, to unite and to unify. And these days, we live in a strange world in which the more pompous and maybe hateful somebody is, the bigger the microphone in front of them seems to get. Uh, we amplify vitriol, but the good and the beautiful and love sometimes is exiled to a very private realm. I think what Rumi does is to remind us in a beautiful way of the power of love, not just as a mushy emotion, but really as what he considered love to be, which is God unleashed onto this world. And yes. when that love is flowing, then it unites people, it makes you whole inside, it makes the human community whole, and then it delivers you to the divine. I think that's what he has to offer us now. Very good. And Coleman, how do you think that Rumi's work can bring two nations closer? He brought his friendship with Shams Tabriz, one of our most beautiful religious uh, mysteries, the friendship. And we can all enter into that friendship with each other. You can feel the uh, uh, power and the depth. For this hour, we are uh, talking to two great men who took an enormous task to reintroduce one of the most beloved person on earth, in my opinion, Molana Jalal Din Rumi, known as Rumi in the West. Coleman Barks, poet himself, translated Rumi's poems in a way that made people to fall in love with this man and his poems. Omi Safi, professor, scholar, and writer of Rumi's work, he tells his students the unusual love and journey that Rumi took to become one of the greatest men in the Islamic tradition. 
So here's my question. I am so much interested to know Rumi Medshams. This amazing love and friendship created uh, between them. But how can we call the love the divine love and uh, not, you know, a love between two men? Well, um, so let's just kind of start by setting aside the little dichotomy right there that there either has to be the love of God or the love that is shared between and among human beings. Uh, you know, Rumi doesn't just show up in the middle of the night. He's part of a much longer tradition. I've called that the tradition of radical love, radical love. And in Persian, we would call this mazhab ishq the path of radical love. And this is a school of thought that goes back a few hundred years before Rumi, and it has one simple premise. And the basic idea is just this, that we're not going to divide love into God's love and human love. There is, as Bob Marley would have said, one love. That any time that you can experience love purely, if you can get over yourself and give yourself over to love, then you are merging into, Coleman likes rivers, you're merging into this cosmic river of love. And this is the unfolding of God on earth. It is this love that brought you here. It is this love that sustains you here. And if you can learn to love one other fellow human being, it doesn't have to be romantic. It doesn't have to be sexual. It could be a friendship. It could be your mama. It could be a neighbor, a friend. And this day, I would say a stranger. If you can learn to love, then that same love is going to carry you back to your divine source. I think that's the premise of Rumi's message, that God's love and human love mingle together, that you cannot claim that you love God, but you got no love for God's creation. So how, how does Rumi teaches the kind of love that you were talking about? Sure. Yeah, we can go to Coleman. Yes, go ahead, I Coleman. Yes. Rumi is that uh, maybe talks about that. He says, talking to Shams, he says, in your light, I learn how to love. In your beauty, how to make poems. You dance inside my chest where no one sees you, but sometimes I do. And that sight becomes this art. Somehow the presence of Shams in, in Rumi's life becomes the making itself, the art of a, as a mystery of how that happens with uh, he called uh, the, his collected poems the, the works of Shams to Bruce. And so, in other words, if Shams had not been there, the poems would not be there. <laughs> yeah. These are the works that drives librarians crazy. You know, because this is called the works of Shams to Bruce. But it's, uh, it's Rumi's poems, uh, his complete poems. It's called the Divani Shams to Bruce. <laughs> Coleman, do you have uh, some of those poems that you could read for us? Sure. Are you jealous of the ocean's generosity? Why would you refuse to give this love to anyone? Fish don't hold the sacred lip liquid in cups. <laughs> they swim the huge fluid freedom. So what was it, um, uh, Omid, I'm going to ask you to read you some of one, of one or two of your favorite poems. But uh, Coleman, what do you think this relationship had? You know, 
I kept hearing about the love. I kept hearing about this very special relationship that made one person, he says that I was this uh, greatest scholar, instructor, professor of my time, and you made me the plaything of the kids in the, on the street. So what does this man had really? What, what effect? How can we explain that? Coleman. Well, I mean, that, that's a... Uh, that, um light and the depth uh, is a, how would you explain the inner, uh, the uh, presence of Jesus or Muhammad, you know, you just have to, uh, and it, it's not a problem, is it, to believe in that power of, of, of friendship. And then, Omid, can you tell us, uh, yeah, read us some, uh, some of the poems you, you like? Sure. Um, and I think this one may help a little bit with what you were just asking about. So this is a poem, by the way, that has been so beloved that for about the last 700 years, um, people in Iran, in Afghanistan, in Central Asia, in India, in Pakistan have been singing this poem. I'll read a couple of lines in Persian so you get a sense of its rhythm, and then I'll give you the translation. It says, Man magu. Um, he says he has a visionary experience of love, uh, that love appears to him in this shape of a moon-like beauty. He says, I serve that moon-like beauty, say nothing to me unless it's about her. Last night, I became love-crazed. Love saw me and said, I've come, don't shout, say nothing. Uh, and then Rumi talks to love, and he said, I said to love, love, I'm afraid of something else. Love said, there is nothing else. Say nothing. Let me whisper secrets in your ear. Say nothing. And then Rumi starts talking to love. He says, you are the most beautiful thing I've ever seen. What are you? Are you an angel? Are you a, are you a human? And love said, not an angel, not a human. Say nothing. And then Rumi goes into full-on freak-out mode. He's like, well, if you're not a human, and if you're not an angel, that just leaves one. del in in hast. I said, what is this? Say it. Love said, hush, stay like this. Say nothing. I said, my love, my heart, aren't you describing God? Love said, yes, my child, but hush, say nothing. Right? And the refrain of the poem is Heech Magu, hush, say nothing, say no more. It's, you know, he gives you 60,000 lines of exquisite poetry. And then he brings you right to that point where words have said all that they can say. And then the time comes to switch over to silence. And it's in that silence that you hear the voice of God, which transcends any language. 
Absolutely. Okay, uh, Coleman, here is comes a tough question that I wanted to ask you. Many people are, argue that, and it was a New Yorker's famous uh, essay about ways you translated Rumi, and that was taking out Islam and taking out religion from Rumi and presenting him as a poet. Uh, what is your defense? Well, I hope I don't take out Islam. That one might be right. I hope I just can just put some of the of the depth that I feel and uh, of love in the poems and the uh, brightness of the awakening in there. Uh, Ruby says, "Stay together, friends. Don't scatter and sleep. Our friendship is made." of being awake. The water wheel accepts water and turns and gives it away, weeping. That way it stays in the garden. Whereas another roundness rolls through a dry river riverbed looking for what it thinks it wants. Stay here, quivering with each moment like a drop of mercury. Coleman, beautiful, thank you, but I'm not going to let you go without answering this question. This is this kind of animosity between Islam and the West, and this is animosity. The violence against Muslims is skyrocketed. So would you think that if Islam has been included so heavily as it is included in Masnavi and uh, his Ghazaliyat, his uh, shorter poems and longer poems. So would you think that if Islam was included, uh, he would have given this kind of praise? Because I do believe that I read Rumi, I read your translations, and I think that some of the criticism is right, that perhaps Islam is not really heavily presented in his in in the translation so would you think that it would have been um, as popular if islam was very present in the translations oh me i don't he's just uh, drenched with the quran and uh uh so you can't leave that out um and i hope i haven't there's one thing that we can agree uh, with the, the Iranians about is our love for Rumi's poetry. And uh, that's, a, that's a, uh, one area of agreement that we can, we can love that together. It's an important thing, I think, that we, have, that we can share that. If Rumi was here, here with us, uh, present in your room, in Omi's room, in my room. So, what would you, what would you think that he would say about COVID nineteen? <laughs> uh, about the the virus, huh? Yeah. Yes, about the virus. Yeah. Oh. The virus is part of creation too. We need to learn to live with it. Find a cure. Very good. And then, Omid, what would you think uh, Rumi would say about the COVID-19 and the, the kind of situation that we are living right now? 
Uh, I don't know what you mean, uh, if he were here with us right now. Oh. Of course, he is already here with us right now. These are, these are beings who, who never die entirely from, from this world. And as long as we're hanging on to love, then they're always uh, present with us. Look, uh, you know, I think that Rumi was somebody that knew how to toggle between words and silence. And there would be a difference uh, when he was dealing with somebody who had lost a loved one, when he was dealing with somebody who would have maybe lost a job, um, that would have been a time for silence and for sympathy and for kindness and sharing. And then there might come a time later on for words. And I think at that time he would say, now all of you are so aware of the fact that all of y'all are in this together. That something that happens in one part of the world can easily affect and infect somebody on this side of the world. What if you took that perspective and you cultivated it and you deepened it and you widened it and you realize that it's always like this? That it's not only when it comes to a virus that you're in this together, but you're in it for food, you're in it for the environment. You're in it for kindness. You're in it for justice. That in every way that makes you human, your lives are deeply interpenetrated and interconnected. And to the extent that one of you is hurting and suffering, then the rest of the human body is also affected. So I think Very you good. have a lot to teach us. Excellent. The next question I'm going to ask first, I'm going to ask the question from Omid first and then from Coleman. Imagining Rumi is here, what is your question for Rumi, Omid? I don't know that I would ask him a question, uh, to be honest with you. I think I would just want to glance upon his face, and I would love to have him glance back at me. There is something beautiful that happens when the glances meet, and there's a mystery in that. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, I'm a man of words. Uh, all behind me, you see the, the, the life of, of words and books that I've spent my life studying. But these books and these words take you to that threshold. And then comes what's beyond words. And I've read his words. I love his words. I teach his words. I want the thing that made him roomy. I want that fire in his heart. I want that presence of God that burns inside of him. And I don't know that I would have to get to that through a question. I think you can get through that through a glance that you exchange with a teacher. Very good. I would ask okay. you to sing us a song about this moment with all these microphones and all this. <laughs> these are, uh, equipment that we have, yeah, he, he would have some beauty. See the beauty of that. Is there any any song in your mind that you think probably Rumi would have would would have do would have sing? Oh, here's one. You know, the Rumi doesn't have uh, titles in Persian, but I've given. Uh, this one, it's called Escaping to the Forest. Some souls have gotten free of their bodies. Do you see them? 
open your eyes for those who escape to meet with other escapees whose hearts associate in a way they have of leaving their false selves to live in a truer self. I don't mind if my companions wander away for a while. They will come back like a smiling drunk. The thirsty ones die of their thirst. The nightingale sometimes flies from the garden to sing in the forest. Very good. So the, the kind of music I'm thinking about, the lines that you just r- read, is something like that. Something like that. So, <laughs> okay. Yes, yes, yes. La ilaha illahu. Exactly. La ilaha illahu. Yeah. Beautiful. So stay with me, Coleman. You are watching to Peace Mindedly, a podcast show featuring peaceful bridge makers. For this hour, we are talking with Coleman Barks and Omid Safi, translators and teachers of Rumi's poems. I have a list of these gentlemen's books on goldtone.com. So when you go to goldtone.com, you see uh, links to their books and to their uh, works and it's a wealth of information. More than welcome to check the list. Uh, when you go to goldtone.com, please sign up for our email list. It's very, very important. Also ask again, uh, please give me feedback, editor at goldtone.com. I appreciate your feedback and I would like to improve my work. Your comments, suggestions, questions is going to help me tremendously. Also, I wanted to mention that Omid is teaching an amazing course, illuminated course, and then he, he'll probably just touch base on the course. At the end of the program, I usually ask my guests to close the program for me, sharing something meaningful about peace, whether there's a statement, there is a line of poetry, there is a prayer that they would like to share with us. And then here I'm going to ask Omid first and then Coleman to share with us something about peace, compassion, kindness. Go ahead, Omid. Thank you so much, Sarah. So, so yeah, so I've um, had the wonderful um, honor of putting together an online course. It's uh, open to anybody. It's at uh, Illuminated Courses. And what I wanted to do was there's so many of us that love Rumi's poetry and love Rumi's stories, but maybe don't quite understand or get a sense of the bigger picture of how these stories connect together. So what I did was I went through Rumi's Masnavi and talked about how it's not just a series of random stories. It's actually the journey of the soul. And he takes you from that state of brokenness and vulnerability that he starts with, where we're all lamenting and complaining about being separated from God. And then he takes you on this path of love, and you end up with a famous story that's what I would like to leave you with here, which is the story of Imam Ali. And it's a famous story. It's a historic one. Uh, that Ali's engaged in a battle with this warrior and he defeats him. And the warrior is so disgusted at having lost that he spits on Ali's face. 
And Ali gets up from his chest and he puts his sword back in his sheath. And because he's Rumi and he can do that, they proceed to have a 20-page mystical dialogue together. And the warrior says to him, you know, you had me beat. Why don't you just finish me off? And Ali says, you know, you think that you're the warrior, but your strength comes from the muscles. I am the real mountain here because I only move when I see the face of my Lord. And the warrior's like, wow, that sounds really great. Um, now tell me a little bit more. And this is the gem that I think it would be good for us to take away with. He says, when you were sitting on my chest and you had your sword drawn and you were just about to kill me, it was like I saw a flash of lightning in your eye. What was that about? And Ali, in Rumi's telling, says this line, to mani yo man to am e mohtasham, to Ali budi. Ali Ali says, you know, I was sitting on your chest. I was about to kill you. I looked into your eyes and in your eyes, I saw a reflection of myself. And I realized if I kill you, I would have killed a part of myself. So since you have Ali in you, since you are Ali, how can this Ali kill that Ali? And Rumi asks us to really sit with that. And I think it's so important for all of us who've loved Rumi's poetry through Coleman's works or my works or anybody else's works to realize that this message of the mystical journey also leads to a transformation of the way that we relate to our fellow human beings. And the one that we used to think of as the enemy has the potential to be transformed into the friend. So to that extent, the peace that Rumi is talking about is not just the absence of war. Peace, real peace, is when love comes into the public space and creates a new world out of this old world. And um, I would love to share more of that, but the time is short. And uh, if anybody's interested, you know, please go ahead and have a look at those um, illuminated courses. Sure. Okay, Coleman. So it's your turn. Uh, one poem of, of his about the beloved or the friend. If the beloved is everywhere, the lover is a veil. But when living itself becomes the friend, Lovers disappear. Thank you, Amen. Amen. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure to have you, both of you gentlemen. Uh, really, thank you very much for being here and spending time with me. I um, hope to see you soon and God bless. And thank you so much. Thank you, Sarah. Thank, thank you, thank you, Thank you, Sarah. Good way to spend a spring afternoon, isn't it? What a beautiful way. Any day is a good day with Rumi. <laughs> Absolutely. Bye bye. Hoda Hafiz.